This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Self-approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we will be taking people's phone calls and questions. You can email us directly into the studio at tbl at wagp.net, or you can call us locally, the 843 Exchange. Uh, For our friends in Georgia and other places, is uh, 525-1859, When you call, you can go on the air live, or you can simply dictate your question if you're more comfortable doing that. So we're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it to us today. So, Rick, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor, we do have a number of questions that have uh, come in via email. And the first comes from Keith. He writes, I'm from a small town in eastern Kentucky. My wife and I listen very often to Dr. Brogy and have greatly been blessed by his teachings. She daily studies from the Search the Scriptures in one room while I study the messages in another room. My church and my pastor are under dispensational teaching. He has a problem understanding chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. I, on the other hand, take them on face value, as I've heard Dr. Brogy teaching on these churches. My pastor believes that these churches are Jewish. This creates a problem for him when he comes to chapter 4 in the rapture of the church. I believe these churches in chapter 2 and 3 are Gentiles and Jewish, saved by grace through faith. I believe this because they are Gentile cities that the, Apostles Paul start, the Apostle Paul started churches in. Can you please comment on this for me because of the verse where Paul says, all those in Asia have left me or left his grace message? Well, this is a, a great question, and let me define some terms because not everyone maybe is familiar, say, with the term dispensational. Uh, it's just kind of like the term reform. Someone may say they're reformed, and you can have 10 definitions of it. And the same could be said of a dispensationalist. But God works in different time frames or dispensations. And that's actually a word that is uh, translated in the New Testament in different ways. But with that said, the bottom line of dispensationalism is it does make a distinction between Israel and the church. It does not deny that God made an eternal, unconditional covenant with Abraham that was reaffirmed through Isaac and Jacob, and and that God has a plan for the people of Israel. And as he used Israel the first time to bring about the first coming, he'll use the nation of Israel to bring about the second coming. There are some who bear the uh, title Reformed, and again, you know, you could bear the title Reformed. I'm a Reformed Christian and have a different definition than maybe Calvin. Calvin said some very hateful things, as did Augustine, as did Luther, over the Jewish people. And I'm sure they thought they were doing a service to the Lord in the process of it, but God's not done with Israel. The church is not the new Israel. God's prophetic plan 
will be completed through Israel. And one of the reasons so many Christians are asleep is because they don't see the significance of Israel. When you've got guys like John Piper and others who say, well, Israel's no different than Uganda, that creates a real problem. And it, it puts Christians asleep. And again, I wouldn't say that many of the folks who fall into that camp are anti-Semites, but I will say that they contribute to anti-Semitism because when you don't hold up Israel, that God will bless those whom will bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel, then uh, you basically uh, remove your saltiness, you move the bright light that is part of our testimony, and it opens the door for that. And so you know what's headed down the road because God says that in the prophet Zechariah reaffirmed in uh, in the book of Revelation, that all the nations of the world will someday come against Israel. And we see that growing anti-Semitic movement across especially Western Europe, but throughout the world today. So there's a distinction. So when you come to Revelation 2 and 3, uh, you find basically Christ speaking to seven churches. And of course, there's an outline given in the book of Revelation itself in the opening chapter because the Lord said, therefore, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. And so he, he writes of this picture of this glorified Christ and the things which are. And so he writes of seven churches that are in existence uh, during John's lifetime. John is the oldest of all the apostles and uh, lives the longest, uh, so to speak. And then he dies as a um, of old age, um, uh, as a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. I've been to the Isle of Patmos. I've been to the cave where John supposedly wrote the book of Revelation and lived uh, during that time. Uh, but it's a desolate place, uh, Patmos, and it was kind of like a large prison camp that the Roman government used. And so it's uh, on the Isle of Patmos. He tells us in the first chapter that he writes the Revelation. He's really given the Revelation. It's not Revelations. There's no such book. It's a single revelation given um, by Christ ultimately to uh, John the Apostle. And then he says, write about the things after these things. And so the after these things section of the revelation begins in chapter 4 and verse 1. So what's the nature of these seven churches? They are real historical churches that were functioning in the first century. And so I'm not sure why your pastor would argue that they are Jewish. Most people don't say that, not even those who have a shaky view of the Revelation. Uh, There are some in the Reformed camp that Revelation just says too much to them. It says too much about the Jews. And so they make it all historical. Uh, They say everything in the book of Revelation happened before 70 AD, with the exception of chapters in, say, 19 and 20, and even there, they spiritualize. They wouldn't spiritualize the literal physical second coming of Christ, but the uh, coming kingdom, they, they, they would. Uh, with, with that said, these seven churches are real historical churches, and when you study them, uh, they're comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Take Ephesus, the first, first church mentioned. Uh, Jesus um, uh, says this um, plainly. He says, to the angel, or you might say to the pastor, the word angel can refer to a literal angel, or it can refer to a literal human being. The word angelos just means a messenger. So there are people in the New Testament who are called angels, like John the Baptist is called an angel. 
his disciples are called angeloi, angels, and that they were messengers. And so angels, literal angels, don't pass through churches, but people, messengers, do. And he writes first to the church at Ephesus. Well, what do we know about Ephesus? Well, it was one of the most prominent cities in, in Asia, minor, and it had a long uh, reputation and overall a pretty good reputation. It's a very positive letter, the letter to the Ephesians that Paul writes. And of course, Paul spent three years in the city of Ephesus. He spent more time in the city of Ephesus than any single place during his entire ministry. And in Acts 19, he makes this statement, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So he's, he's in Ephesus, and because of his ministry in Ephesus, and Ephesus was kind of like a hub, like uh, if you wanted to reach uh, Marietta, Georgia, or some of the uh, cities around Atlanta, you might go to Atlanta, and Atlanta is the hub, and then people move out from the hub to those surrounding cities. Well, they moved from Ephesus to the surrounding cities across Asia Minor. And, of course, that section was largely uh, Jewish and, uh, excuse me, largely Gentile with, with Jews there. And so clearly the church at Ephesus, when you read Acts, it's mainly Gentiles, though there are Jews. And he speaks of the fact that God removed the dividing wall between Jew and Greek and made us one people that in the body of Christ, uh, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male nor female. We all share the same benefits, the same spiritual blessings, in spite of your background or your economic status or race or anything else. Uh, God treats us as, as one. The next church, the church at Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich in the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So some argue, again, it's very much a minority view that he's speaking to Jewish Christians because of the use of the term synagogue. But if you read verses 8 and 9 carefully that I just read, he uses both the word church and the word synagogue when he addresses the people in Smyrna. Um, If he had meant just Jews, he would have said to the synagogue in Smyrna. Uh, But at this point, of course, the Christians aren't really even meeting in synagogues. They're they're meeting in homes and other places. For the most part, they had been ostracized uh, from the synagogue and, and their initial witness to Jewish people who were open to Jesus had been finished. Uh, So he does make mention here, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. He's not denying that there are physical, literal descendants of Abraham there, but he's saying that while they are physical Jews, they're not true Jews, kind of like Paul does in Romans 2. He speaks of Jewish people who have been circumcised in the flesh but they haven't been circumcised in the heart. They haven't been born again. Jesus spoke of the same thing in John 8. He spoke to Jewish people, and he said, you are of your father the devil. Uh, They claimed to be children of God because they were descendants of Abraham, and Jesus' argument was if you were really true descendants of Abraham, you'd do the deeds of Abraham, you'd show that you were converted, but you're not. You're still of your father the devil, and you do his deeds, and he's a murderer from the beginning. 
So when you read through these churches, there are Jews and Gentiles who are present. And uh, I have a whole set of messages on these seven churches. I spend over an hour in each church. So there's seven plus hours of preaching just on the seven churches. What's kind of um, interesting, though, to think while this question has been raised when the church was started, when the church was born on Pentecost, most of the persecution came from Jewish people, uh, Jewish people who had rejected Jesus as Lord. And there was a number of reasons, uh, largely because they were self-righteous. And Paul addresses this issue in Romans 10. Uh, they sought to establish a righteousness of their own rather than that righteousness that God gives as a gift by his grace. And and that's why Jesus could say, it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. I, I didn't come to save the righteous, people who think they're okay. I came to call sinners to repentance. But when the church was born, the persecution, even more than the Roman government initially, it came from the Jewish people. But as the church progressed, and the centuries went through, sadly, Christians became persecutors of Jews. And so the term Christian was almost synonymous with Jew hater. And of course, a lot that was done uh, by those who say they were Christians were not true Christians. Um, You could almost take Jesus's words by the time you come to the fourth and fifth centuries and take uh, what he said here to the church at Smyrna and say, well, those who say they are Christians, they are not, but they are the church of Satan. Uh, and so there, much of the persecution that has come upon Jews have not been done by born-again Christians. But sadly, because of things that Augustine said, that Calvin said, that Luther said in the early centuries, and then in the time of the Reformation, contributed to the great persecution. It's embarrassing to me to read what John Calvin wrote. It's embarrassing to me as a believer when I dialogue with Jewish people in Israel and they bring these things up. To, to, to say what, you know, uh, Martin Luther said about the Jewish people. So um, anyway, it's a great question, clearly, and again, it's a minority view. And so a good rule of thumb is if it's new, it's not true. And uh, it's, it's a minority view to say that these seven churches are just Jewish people because clearly they are not. All right, let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Andy from Savannah writes, can you give some insight and background when the Bible talks about speaking in tongues and gifts of prophecy as in 1 Corinthians 13? Well, um, last week someone called about the question on spiritual gifts, and I reminded them that there are four central passages on gifts, two fours, two twelves. Easy to remember them in that fashion. First Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and 1 Corinthians 12, all the way through chapters 14. And so this subject now concerning spiritual gifts, or literally the spirituals, um, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant. And then he goes on and he begins to spell it out. The sad thing with the Corinthians is they had placed a lot of emphasis on some of the sign gifts when they needed to put their emphasis on the non-sign gifts. And in placing the emphasis on some of the sign gifts, like tongues and interpretation of tongues, you're dismissing the importance of the other gifts. And so Paul will give this argument that the body, the human body, as well as the body of Christ is not one member, but many uh, because I'm not a hand, I can't say I'm a part of the body. 
The hand is an important part of your body. You say it's maybe not as important as the heart or the brain, but listen, you can't function without a hand. He says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God has placed the members of his body, the spiritual body, each one of them just like he desired. And so in four different places in the New Testament, we are told specifically that God is the one who determines your spiritual gifts. So if you go to some church and they say, hey, why don't you speak in tongues? What they're really saying is you can determine whether or not you get this gift. And that in and of itself should raise a red flag because in four different places, including this chapter, the gifts are given as God wills. You don't decide for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. And so he is the one in the verse that precedes that one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. So just as the spirit of God wills, Ephesians says Christ wills the gifts. Uh, Romans 12 says the Father decides the gifts. If there's an emphasis, I'd say it's probably on the Spirit of God. But again, you can't cut up the members of the Trinity. Like who created the world? Well, the Father did. The Spirit did. Christ did. All three are affirmed with the creation of the world. Who gives gifts? All three members of the Godhead. Certainly the accent would be on the Spirit of God. But again, it's affirmed clearly in four different places, it's not determined by you. So when you go to a church and they're encouraging you to speak in tongues, one, they are saying you can determine whether or not, so let us help you to see if you can get this so-called spiritual gift. Now, this was a sign gift, and it was a miraculous gift, and it was clearly given at the start of the church like other gifts were. There are four sign gifts in the New Testament, the gift of tongues, the gift of interpretation of tongues, the gift of miracles, and the gift of healings. Now, God still does miracles, and God still heals. The question is, does he do it through the spiritual gift? And I would say no, and I have a handout on this. I think it's 10 or 11 pages long that this person might want to call, search the scriptures, and ask for. In fact, I have a whole course on the subject of spiritual gifts where I walk through very carefully all 20 gifts listed in the New Testament, what they look like, how they function. But I have a special section dealing with sign gifts in the New Testament because there's so much confusion. And there are people who have milked the sign gifts basically to line their wallets and to make themselves rich. Whether it's a Benny Hinn or whoever it may be, there's just a ton of folks out there that have done that and abused what God has plainly said. So the gift of tongues was the ability to speak a a language that you didn't know that was a real language, and that was the nature of the gift. It's actually described only in one place specifically, and that's in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, where you find different languages, real human languages, and dialects within the language that are spoken. And that's what was mind-blowing to some of the Jewish people that here's a a Galilean, and yet I'm hearing him speak my language in my dialect. How is that possible? He's a Galilean. It was because it was a miracle of God, and that was the nature of the sign gifts, and it had many functions. And again, I walked through in great detail, and I could spend the next two hours just talking about that. 
But what we have today where someone is in a church and speaks in tongues is not what we see in the New Testament. Um, Again, it would be like me. My lingua franca is English, and all of a sudden I can speak perfect Filipino. That would be a miracle because I don't know if I know any words in the Philippine language. That may be a few food types that I enjoy, but um, that would be a miracle. And it would get your attention. I've known Carl Brogy my whole life, and wow, listen to him speak Filipino. And God used this as an opportunity to affirm the truth of his messengers and to preach the gospel. Someone with the gift of interpretation who didn't know a word of Filipino could all of a sudden perfectly interpret what I'm saying. That's a miracle. Uh, So what we're seeing today, in fact, if you go to India, I've been twice, and there's a sect of Hinduism called Kindalini Hinduism. If I ask you today, hey, if you went into a church and they were laughing uncontrollably, if they were uh, feigning on the floor, being what people call slain in the spirit, if they were speaking in tongues, who are they? You'd say, oh, well, they're Pentecostals or charismatic Christians. Actually, you could say they're Kindalini Hindus. Because Hindus do the same thing. Uh, And what they're doing is obviously not from God. Uh, I spoke on Saturday with a woman who visited our church. And, you know, I'm always curious when people come, why they came. And she told me about this church she went to. And she was kind of frustrated because the pastor told jokes the whole hour. And and she thought, oh, I'm going to leave maybe. And she went back the next week and She said, this lady came to the front of the church and spoke in tongues, and she said, it just made me cry, and I just thought, maybe I'll stay. And then the next week, she went back, and it was another pastor, and all he did was tell jokes. And so she ended up visiting our church. Of course, I asked her the diagnostic questions. And by the way, she had been to that church for two years. I'm just describing the tail end of her experience. Two years. I asked her the diagnostic questions. How sure are you if you died right now that you go to heaven? I'm 500%. I, I've never had actually someone say 500% before. They usually say 100 or maybe negative 100, 500%. I said, well, can I ask you why you're 500%? She said, well, that's a good question. And she just went on and rambled about all the good things she had done, what a fine Christian mother and lady she was, and on and on and on and on and on. What did that tell me? It told me she was lost, but you know what the sad thing was? She attended that church for two years, and no one ever confronted her about the gospel. In fact, one of the reasons she stayed is because when she went to that church, she thought, you know, I'd really kind of like to serve somewhere. And before the service was over and she'd left the building, someone came up and said, hey, would you like to serve in children's ministries? We need another teacher. And she thought, well, this was just like an answer to prayer, so that's why she stayed. But again, no one ever found out if she was even born again. And what moved her to tears was someone speaking in tongues in the church, and it wasn't even a real spiritual gift. That's, that's sad. That's really pathetic. But that's how the evil one works, with substitutes. So I would encourage this person, because I'm just giving you the short answer. Look, if the gift of tongues was being given today, we ought to be able to record the gift, and then we ought to be able to find someone with the gift of interpretation. 
when we played this person speaking in tongue, they ought to be able to give the interpretation. You pick the person. You pick the person with the gift of interpretation. Then let's find another person. We'll play the same audio tape, same video, and let them interpret. You pick the person. They ought to be able to come up with the same interpretation. It's never happened because what we see happening today is not the gift of tongues. And it's not a necessary gift today because if the gift of tongues is still being given, and even if um, what is done in the New Testament was followed, only one or two in a service, and then only if someone has the gift of interpretation, if the gift of tongues, and, and, and that doesn't happen virtually anywhere, but even if the gift of tongues were being given today, uh, then what you have is an open canon. You have someone who can stand up in the church and supposedly someone who can interpret and say, thus saith the Lord. And what they're saying is equal to the word of God. But remember, there was a time in church history when the Bible was just being written. The first line of the New Testament was not written before the gift of tongues was exemplified. It's exemplified on the day of Pentecost. The first phrase of Matthew 1.1, which chronologically was the first book of the New Testament written, and it falls chronologically that in that fashion in our Bibles, uh, it hadn't been written yet, yet people were speaking in tongues. And, and, so, and they were speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and they were really saying, thus saith the Lord. Well, you know, we don't have an open canon, so there's no need for tongues today. Everything that God said is in these 66 books, and that's as far as we need to go. Good question. It's a loaded question. Get the handout, Andy, from Savannah, looks like. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Tim from Bridgeport, Connecticut writes, will there be animal sacrifices in the millennial reign of Christ? And if so, can you explain why? It's confusing. Well, yes, there will be. And some people take offense at that, that there'll be animal sacrifices during the millennial reign of the Messiah. But it's clearly taught in the Bible. Uh, One, it's taught there'll be a kingdom. And again, you meet people who say they're reformed, and there's a dozen different definitions. But typically in historical reformed theology, they say the church has replaced Israel. So there's no literal kingdom. So when they come to the book of Revelation, most of them take what's called the preterist interpretation Preterist is from the Latin word preterē, that means past. And so they say everything in Revelation is history. And so, you know, the great seal and trumpet and bold judgments, those all happened in the first century. Again, you have to spiritualize the text because there is nothing ever in the history of the world that took place like is described in the book of Revelation. But God warns of it. Jesus spoke of it as such a time of terror that he said, unless those days had been cut short, no flesh, no person would have ever survived in the Olivet Discourse. Well, listen, what happened in 70 AD, which they see as a fulfillment when uh, Titus came down and ended up, you know, sieging the city of, uh, besieging the city of Jerusalem and eventually starved him to death and people escaped and thousands were crucified Estimated by Josephus, over 100,000 Jews were crucified around the city. They, they, they crucified so many individuals that uh, they ran out of wood in the surrounding area. Um, but even as horrible as that was, it's nothing like described in the book of Revelation, and it's a localized hatred 
it's not a worldwide kind of thing. So you, you really have to blur what God has plainly said, and you have to blur the Olivet Discourse, but they view the Olivet Discourse until the time that Jesus comes on the clouds in glory as historical. And it's a it's an abuse. So you got guys like R.C. Sproul and others who, you know, he, he knew Christ. Um, I'm not denying that he's a believer. But he had some weird theology. He had some really weird theology. And I don't know how else to say it. The sad thing is, is he's, he had in some ways a good influence on many people, but a negative influence on other people. He had a loose view on alcohol. He had a he had a loose view in his early years on smoking. And he smoked, and eventually he came to grips that, hey, I shouldn't be smoking. And that's, that's how he ended up dying. You know, he, he damaged his lungs for all the years he smoked. And, you know, when I would see him with a glass of wine and a picture, I thought, you know, what a terrible testimony to young men going into the ministry because so many admired him. Um, but again, you have these guys from the Reformed camp who deny the future relationship that God has with the people of Israel. But the Lord taught us, and so they deny the coming kingdom because there's kingdom promises concerning the people of Israel. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But understand this future kingdom that will literally actually come to earth as the Old Testament prophets describe as the New Testament tells us is a thousand years in length, doesn't dismiss or outrule the fact that there's a current rule of Christ from heaven. God is sovereign. He's ruling from in heaven above, nor the fact that there's a spiritual kingdom that when you were born again, you immediately become a part of it. Well, during the millennial reign of the Messiah, there's going to be another temple that is going to be built. And so when you read about the temples in the Bible, you always want to ask which one. There's the initial temple that the Jews just marveled at, and when they would recall it after it had been destroyed, it was like nothing was like Solomon's temple. It was absolutely magnificent. And there's the first temple that was built by King Solomon. If you remember, God warned the southern tribe after the kingdom split. Uh, Solomon's son steps up to the throne, and uh, when he Rehoboam comes to the throne. He's compromised in his own heart. He listens to the younger elders rather than the wiser elders in Israel. And he says, you guys think you had it hard under my daddy. You you haven't seen anything yet. And so they say, we're not putting up with this. And they split into 10 northern tribes. From there on, the 10 northern tribes are called Israel. The two southern tribes are called Judah. And so uh, God carries away the northern tribes by the Assyrians. They ultimately are overthrown by the Babylonians. Babylonians come down. They crush the two southern tribes. And uh, they're carried away as well. So this first temple is destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar comes. Then another fellow comes and he rebuilds the temple, Zerubbabel. And later on, uh, his temple is updated by King Herod. And King Herod did a magnificent job with the Temple Mount. He built this retaining wall all the way around it. And then he put this series of arches on this land that was hilly and made it all flat. And so when you look at a picture of Jerusalem today, you typically see the Dome of the Rock. And you see this large, uh, about 37-acre surface. Uh, That's the Temple Mount that King Herod had built, and he changed the whole dynamic. Some would say, well, that was like a third temple, but probably better to call it the second temple because the second temple never closed, even during all of Herod's refurbishments, which were finished actually shortly 
before it was destroyed. So the plan that he had, they kept building and building and building and building and building. And then I think it was like 68 AD, it was finished. And in 70 AD, they crushed it. There's another temple that's going to be built. It's called the Tribulation Temple. And uh, there are plans right now in Jerusalem. I brought people before when we go to Jerusalem. And by the way, God willing, we're going in May of 2022. If you're interested, uh, we have, I think, room for 15 more people. Uh, you can go to searchthescriptures.org, and we go to the Temple Institute where you see all the plans. In fact, everything, every piece of a temple furniture has been reconstructed with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant because the Jewish people say they know where it is, and the people at the Temple Institute say we know right where it is. When we need it, we're going to get it. Uh, all the priestly garments, they practice outside of the city right now on how to do animal sacrifices. I've seen the blueprints for the temple that's going to be rebuilt there on top of the Temple Mount. It will happen. How do we know? Because God says it will. And, you know, again, you preached this 100 years ago, and Israel wasn't even a nation. People laughed at you. But God is fulfilling prophecy even as we speak in this day. And so that temple will be replaced with a new temple called the Millennial Temple. It's spoken of by four different prophets in the Old Testament. And so Ezekiel describes it. People say, well, he's describing an earlier temple. No, he's not. In fact, God is so specific, he gives the dimensions of it. And it's much larger, much bigger. It's like nothing we've ever seen before. And they're going to sacrifice animals. And again, the objection is, well, wait a minute. The writer of the Hebrews says... There is a once-and-for-all sacrifice that's been made. But you read here in the, um, in for instance, I've just turned to Ezekiel chapter 45, and he's giving this detailed description of what is to be done and how the sacrifices are to be made and what they will look at, look like. And, and what's kind of interesting is three different times in this chapter, he speaks of the fact that for instance, uh, in one sheep from each flock of 200 from the watering places of Israel for a grain offering, for a burnt offering, and for a peace offering to make atonement for them, declares the Lord. In fact, uh, throughout this chapter, he uses the word to make atonement. And so some of my Reformed friends get bent out of shape, and they say, well, wait a minute. The writer of the Hebrews says that the blood of Christ eliminated the need for the temple in Jerusalem, and it did. It did eliminate the need because of his once-and-for-all sacrifice. The writer of the Hebrews very detailed and descriptively explains why there is no need for a temple in Jesus' day. He says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. He's talking about the Messiah, how he would incarnate himself in human flesh. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, here's the Messiah speaking, behold, I've come, quoting the Old Testament, in the scroll of the book that's written of me, to do your will, O God. And so after saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired nor have taken any pleasure in. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And so he makes it very clear that Jesus, um, 
by his once and for all sacrifice paid for sin. And so they say, then, you know, how can you say there's going to be a coming millennial temple? Because God says there will be. And again, unless you say God's done with Israel and you spiritualize the scripture, then you have to write it away. Well, you say, how can he say that these things will make atonement? Well, understand that the word atonement, you need to look at it in its contextual meaning. Read Leviticus 4. Five different times in that chapter, if I remember correctly, Moses says that this sacrifice will make atonement, make atonement, make atonement, make atonement. Well, wait a minute. We just read that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. They can't. They can't take away sin. But making atonement is not the same as taking away sin. There's a huge difference. And so people, you know, dismiss Ezekiel and say, well, he's speaking of another temple or this just doesn't apply and because he uses the words make atonement. Well, so did Moses. And the Bible plainly affirms the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But the term make atonement is not speaking in reference to Christ's sacrifice. It's speaking of the fact that the altar will be cleansed or this piece of furniture will be cleansed. And that's what's in view. Well, why are we even going to have this temple? Well, why do we have the Lord's Supper? I mean, what we do at the Lord's Supper is we remember what Jesus did, but it's already been done because we want to remember. And he wants us to remember, and he wants to burn into our thinking constantly, like Paul who carried about in his own body the death of Christ, and he doesn't ever, ever want us to forget. And during the millennial reign, there'll be two groups of people that will be present people who are in glorified, resurrected bodies who had been raptured prior to the tribulation, and there will be people who will enter the millennial reign of Christ who are saved during the tribulation in their natural bodies. And yes, during the time of the millennial reign of Messiah, the curse will be lifted off of the creation in some sense, such that the baby can play next to the cobra's nest, that the lion will lay down with the wolf and the lamb, and they'll not fight and be enemies of one another. Uh, That's never happened. Some, you know, like a famous popular book written on heaven says, well, that's heaven. No, that's not heaven. Um, He later describes in Isaiah a a new heaven and a new earth, just like uh, the Revelation does in Revelation 21.1. No, he's describing the millennial reign of the Messiah. Uh, That has yet to take place. There's so many things that have yet to take place that will begin to unfold at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And so when the curse is lifted off, those who enter in their natural bodies will be able to have families and children and grandchildren. And if you live only to be 100 years, it meant you came under the judgment of God. Uh, People will live like the full 1,000 years. How many kids could you have in a 1,000-year period and grandkids? And the earth will be populated. And even with Christ on the earth, Not everyone who is born during the time of the tribulation period will be believers. They will have to make decisions. My children are not Christians because I am. God has children, as many as received him. To them, he gave the right to be called a child of God. He has no grandchildren. Each of our children have to personally decide for Jesus. So one of the functions of the millennial temple will be to picture what Jesus did. It will be a very vivid picture. You know, um, I did a sermon some years ago, and it was on the um, sacrifice of Abraham with Isaac. 
and a man came up to me. He said, that was just mind-blowing. It's like it was all right there. I said, yeah, I called it a dress rehearsal for what Jesus was going to do on Golgotha. And by the way, Jesus died on Mount Moriah, uh, on a section of Mount Moriah, on the peak of Mount Moriah that we refer to as Golgotha, not by accident that all of this transpired on Mount Moriah. But it was all there, every single stitch of what God would later describe was fulfilled. Well, we were out in the desert in Israel, and we came across the Messianic Jews who had reconstructed the tabernacle. And we actually stumbled upon it. We didn't plan to go there that day. We were going to Solomon's Mines, and right adjacent to it were these Messianic Jews who'd set up the tabernacle. And I said to the tour guide, we got to go see that. And it was a perfect replica. In fact, some of the Orthodox Jews thought it was blasphemous and that they would reconstruct the, the tabernacle. And so they came down and they measured every square inch. Looked, It was perfect. It was a perfect replica. They could say nothing. And these Messianic Jews were using it as a witnessing tool. I mean, every single piece of the tabernacle sent a message, whether it's the porpoise skin, whether it's the various pieces of um, material that we use to construct it, the different kinds of furniture, they all said something about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be one of the functions of the Millennial Temple. It will be a witnessing tool, but it will also be a, a tool that God's people, regenerate people, will just stand in awe when they see the depths of God's word that he wrote about and how he, uh, when he gave to Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Isaiah uh, or Zechariah, four prophets that describe the coming millennial temple and the sacrifices that will be made. It will be a time of great reflection and awe as we see the hand of God and the sovereignty of God as he was writing about these things. So I hope it's not too confusing. It will be a memorial. It will not uh, be propitiatory in that only Christ's blood can pay for sin, but it will look back just like the Lord's table is not the literal body and blood, but it's symbolic, but it has great lessons to teach. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, David from Hickory, North Carolina writes, should a Christian get the COVID vaccine? I've heard arguments both ways using Scripture. Well, that's a loaded question. You know, you, 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 you take a position, oh, he mustn't be saved. He thinks you should get it the shot, or, or he's not very spiritual. He doesn't think much about the temple of the Holy Spirit because he didn't get the shot. And so it's a really loaded, divided question. Uh, let each man be convinced in his own mind. Uh, so this is not a, a, a moral issue per se. It's a, it's a personal issue that you have to decide on based on what you think God wants you to do. If there was a verse that says, thou shalt take the vaccine, uh, then it would be a moral issue. But there's no such issue. But there are some guiding principles that God gives us in his word as to how we might respond in issues like this. And so I would just say that, uh, think about your own health. I mean, again, you know, people say maybe it's loaded and you know, the, the stats the government puts out aren't accurate. You know, they, they said a couple of days ago that you're 11 times more likely to die without the vaccine than you would with the vaccine. Now, you're listening to someone who's never even had a flu shot in his life. 
Um, by God's grace, I'm relatively healthy. Yes, I did get the vaccine. Why did I get it? Because I want to travel in an internationally. And I can't get in an airplane to travel internationally to preach the gospel uh, without the flu shot. I mean, without the vaccine. So that's why I got it. Um, with that said, you need to ask yourself, should you get it? And, you know, that's an issue of conscience between you and the Lord. I had some Marines recently that came to me and the Secretary of Defense mandated that every Marine, every military person who's in active service has to get the vaccine. And one Marine had 18 years of service, the other 17 years of service. I don't know if they knew each other, but they came independently and I would never reveal anyone's name and any personal counseling appointments because I respect that and no pastor ever should, but they were in like great consternation on the inside. And part of it is, you know, we don't know if this is good. Well, um, I think in the short run, it maybe it's generally proven that it's safe. Uh, I mean, we've never had a sample group of 200 million people who've been jabbed. Um, generally speaking, I would say it's safe. Look, there are people who got the uh, polio vaccine and tuberculosis and other things that, you know, um, they reacted to it. So people have always had reactions to vaccines. You know, when the polio shot came, they had to get Elvis Presley to model it to try to get people to uh, to take it because people were afraid and scare, scared. And, you know, I, I, I get that. People say, well, what about the long run? And, and I said to him, well, um, all the folks in Israel have gotten plugged. And I know people are still getting sick, but again, generally speaking, people who are getting sick and hospitalized are the non-vaccinated. That's not always true. And there are some very healthy people who have gotten the vaccine and who have died. So again, there's no hard, fast rule, but I do know this. I know at the end of time, God's going to gather the Jewish people. He has to fulfill a certain number of prophecies before the second coming can happen. Nothing has to happen for the rapture to take place. So if he's going to gather all these Jewish people from the four corners of the earth, as he's done, uh, they're, they're from every continent on the planet. Uh, God has gathered the Jewish people, and they're in the land today. Over 100 nations, 100 different places where the Jews were spread have come back into Israel. Is he going to wipe them out through some vaccine? I don't think so, because he has to fulfill his prophetic plan to bring the Antichrist, to bring them to faith, and to bring Jesus literally, physically, actually to the earth. Which vaccine did they get? They got Pfizer. So I said, you know, if you want to get one, you'd be on the safe side, get Pfizer. But I reminded these two Marines, I said, you know, this is a big issue, and at first, the Secretary of Defense said you have, like, I think till, like, December 31st or something, and, and with the caveat that if a local uh, colonel or general or whoever is over you says, I want it done in this time frame, then you have to respond to that. And so the first Marine came in and said, we have 90 days, according to the local authority. And though I'm not sure I fall under him in terms of the vaccine rule or some guy up in Jacksonville and the other said, no, it's 72 hours. And so I said, well, there's certainly the stewardship issue. You know, if you're going to be dismissed from the Marine Corps and lose your retirement, that's a big issue you want to consider. Now, you know, your retirement is nothing if God doesn't want you to take it. 
but that is a stewardship issue. But I reminded him, too, I said, look, when you, when you signed up to the Marine Corps and you raised your right hand to defend this nation and the Constitution of the United States, you agreed to fall under a different set of rules. So I said, I can understand it. I have two sons who are Marines and uh, Marine officers, and so I can understand um, where they're coming from. They're trying to create a cohesive fighting unit. And I said, look, for the sake of argument, if someone has COVID and they're sicker, which is what the government argues statistically, because they haven't been vaccinated, are you going to leave that Marine behind? Of course not. You're going to drag them on your back. You're going to do whatever it takes. So they're looking at it from a fighting vantage point that we don't want to be weak. We want to be as strong as we can. And the shot would enable us to do that. And so I understand that. And I said, again, you're, you're not a, from a purely political point of view. I, I don't like what our president is doing. I, I'm disgusted by it. You know, where he's mandating uh, people, where he's changed his tune. But they both have president and vice president. One who said, I would never get the shot, the vice president. And, and oh, no, everybody should get the shot. And, and the president who said, oh, we would never mandate this. This is purely voluntary. So, you know, from a p- purely political, a constitutional point of view, I, 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 I'm a, I don't like the mandate. But I also am reminded, too, that when you say become a Marine, I said if someone at Walmart today commits adultery with a fellow employer, or employee, uh, they um, they can come back to work the next day. If you commit adultery as a Marine, if it's enforced, according to the Marine Code of Conduct, you're out of the Marine Corps. You signed up under a different set of rules. And so when you raised your right hand to defend the country, you're not really falling under civilian rules. So to me, I said, that's a bigger issue of conscience for me. And because one guy said, my conscience is screaming you know, telling me not to do it. I said, well, that doesn't make it right. I said, your conscience is not ultimately the guide. You said, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, read Romans 14 and 15. I think I have four or five messages on that. You can have what the Bible calls a weak conscience. And so Paul speaks of Jewish people, say, with a weak conscience who needed to have their consciences strengthened. And so you get them strengthened through God's word. And so you need to, yes, let your conscience lead you, but your conscience needs to be calibrated by the Spirit of God using the Word of God. All right, good question. Um, no, Let me just say, Christians don't need to be divided over this. And you know, look, if churches are splitting over it, you don't need to be divided over this. Just love the person for the decision they've made and leave it there. Let's go to the next question. All right. We just got a caller who was responding to something you said earlier. They'd like to know, if nothing is needed for the rapture to take place, please explain 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 5. Yeah, uh, it's a good question, and uh, it's a fair question, and people often take these verses out of context. I think I have four minutes, so that's not really enough time to explain it, but I can hit on the highlights and you can go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to my exposition on this section. Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together of him, um, to him. Our gathering together, that's the rapture. We're going to come and he's going to take us up in the air. That you not be shaken or disturbed by a spirit, some word of prophecy or a message or some letter like I wrote it, that the day of the Lord had already come. 
Now, the day of the Lord is not in reference to a 24-hour day. Sometimes it can be used that way, but it's used most often in Scripture to describe a protracted period of time, just like the day of your youth. That's not one day. That's a protracted period of time. And so some had disturbed the church at Thessalonica like, oh, the day of the Lord is here. You missed the rapture. We're in it. And Paul's argument is you you couldn't possibly be in the day of the Lord. Let no one deceive you, for it will not come. That's in italics, but it's implied in the Greek New Testament, going back to the antecedent. The day of the Lord will not come, this protracted period of time, unless the apostasy comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself is here. You can't be in the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord with its great tribulation doesn't kick off until the apostasy comes. And so, no, you're not in the great tribulation. You're not in the time of Jacob's trouble. It's impossible for you to be in that time frame. So someone had deceived you like you missed the gathering together, and now we're in the day of the Lord. That's impossible because the signs that have to be fulfilled for the day of the Lord that lead to the second coming haven't even begun. So we've always had apostasy, but there is the apostasy of all apostasies that he'll describe a few verses later, where men, because they reject the love of the truth so as to be saved, God will descend upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what's false. So you'll have all these people who say they are Christians, the rapture happens, and because of their love for sin and their lack of response, God will send a judgment on them. They won't have a chance to believe. They will believe what's false. The only people who come to faith after the church is removed are people who've never heard the gospel before in power and in clarity. So that's the short answer, but I would direct you to searchthescriptures.org, and I I spent an hour just on these verses, and I'll go through every single phrase very, very carefully, but I hope that will get you started. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today, for today's Bible line. We're so glad you can join us. And if you have questions, you can always go to searchthescriptures.org, hit one of the drop-down menus, and click on Ask Dr. Berge a Question. Questions come in from all over the country, foreign countries. But when we answer your question, we will email you and say, hey, your question was answered today, and you can listen to the audio file even if you're not here to listen to it. We always give preference to live callers. Uh, we, I know had some problems with our phone system. I hope it was fixed, Rick. Uh, in either case, when you call live, we'll answer your question immediately that day. Thanks for being with us. God bless you as you walk with Christ. Mm-hmm.